Well, good morning again. I will notice if you are over age three and going out here. If any adults get up to go, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm watching you all. Hey, thanks for being a part of uh, this morning and really glad to see uh, so many of you here this morning. And for those listening online later, uh, thank you for doing so. We're grateful to have you as part of our virtual family. Uh, I want to speak this morning to you about a topic, uh, one word that is simply a word called commitment. I want to talk about this because I think as people we have both a um, love and a fear of the word commitment, and I want to nuance it with you this morning and walk through some implications for our lives this morning. I think we have a love of commitment because we see people who are highly committed to some things that do incredible uh, things in our world, and we love what they do. Think professional athlete, think professional musician, think a high-functioning CEO or president of an organization, uh, an author, a uh, singer, whatever it might be, people who are high-functioning and highly committed to their trade or their task, we look at them and we're inspired to see what they do and wonder how can we do perhaps even just a portion of what they are able to do. When we see commitment in people who are committed to something, we're generally inspired by what they do. In fact, it was Vince Lombardi, he said it this way, he said that most people fail not because of lack of desire but because of lack of commitment. Now, that is kind of true but it can be nuanced even further than that. We also, as a people, have a fear of commitment. And if you're a girl who just got dumped by a guy, this may strike home to you even more, uh, this fear of commitment that we have. We have a fear of commitment not only because that we know that we can't always keep our own standards of commitment, our desire to stay on the diet, right, or our desire to get up early, or our desire to recommit to praying a certain amount, or reading the Bible a certain amount, or disciplining ourselves with our budget a certain amount, or only going out to eat this much, or whatever it might be, whatever the commitment is that we think that we wanted to make, we know that it is difficult, if not impossible, to be 100% full on all the time. And so we can be afraid of commitment because of our own track record with renewing our own commitments at a variety of levels. But there's another fear going on with commitment that is unique to our generation in particular, but is a struggle that I need to nuance. And that is, by definition of being committed to one thing, we by necessity are not committed then to a lot of other things. Okay? By definition of being committed to one thing, you are by definition not able to be committed to everything. It may sound like a simple idea, and you're like, where did you come up with that, Tim? That's really brilliant. Here's how this fleshes out. I was in one of my classes at Dallas Seminary, and a, a, um, a well-known uh, Christian uh, author and speaker was a part of our class. And he just, uh, he was older, and he just kind of told us, he said, listen, uh, one of my main regrets in life is that I spent so much time when I was a younger dad uh, traveling for speaking engagements. I would travel five days a week sometimes, and I was speaking all over the country, internationally, writing all kinds of books. He said, I regret that. I miss the time with my kids, because when you're committed to being great at being a speaker and an author and a writer, which he was and remains to this day, you cannot also be committed to being a dad who is present. You can't be fully committed over here and also be committed over here. Now, this generation that is growing up right now in a world of social media, and this is all that they know, they experience this in a unique way. 
social media takes this nuance and, and pushes it out to us in high-definition color. If you're uh, in high school or if you're in college, high school, junior high or, or younger, um, you know immediately when I use this phrase FOMO, you know what that means. Now, we don't say it that way, we F-O-M-O. That's not a curse word, believe it or not, okay? Just in case anyone is worried, a four-letter F word, no. FOMO, F-O-M-O actually means, some of you know it, what does that mean? Fear of missing out. That's right, fear of missing out. Fear of missing out, um, FOMO, is, is a real reality. It's a psychological issue that is made worse by the impact of social media. And here's how this works. If I'm a teenager, which I'm not, if, if I were, number one, that would be scary. And number two, I don't know if I want to go back to those years. But anyway, if I were, here's what I would be experiencing. A constant barrage of other, my friends doing all kinds of other things that I'm not able to do because I can only be present in one place. Sam Groeschel, who's the son of a speaker and, and pastor, Craig Groeschel, he wrote this past month, so Sam, a teenager, he wrote this in a blog that he posted. He said, of, he said the single biggest thing teens are afraid of today is FOMO, he said. Now, you can agree or disagree, I'm just telling you what he said. He said, this is definitely one of the most common fears that teens have. Everyone wants to be invited to the big parties and make it to all the basketball games. It's hard because even if we drive, we can't be everywhere at once. This is a big fear because we have so many options and we're afraid of choosing the wrong one. What if the other option is more fun or a better choice? The struggle is real. Okay. It is. The struggle is real. The fear of missing out is a real reality. And so in a world where the fear of missing out is dominating, particularly the next generation, when we talk about a word called commitment, how can I be committed to something at all? And now here's the problem with commitment. Our world requires commitment to function. It requires commitment to function at every level. Can you imagine a world where marriages fluctuated every day on their commitment level, every day. Can you imagine a world where there's no commitment in marriage, where there's no commitment in parenting, where there's no commitment as an employer to your employees, where you showed up at work tomorrow and they decided, actually, we don't need you nor want you anymore. Can you imagine a world where your landowner said to you as a renter, sorry, I just don't feel like having you here anymore. The, the lease that you signed is no longer valid. The, can you imagine trying to go to your bank when your bank decided, you know what, we're no longer going to honor your mortgage, you pay it today or it's done and we're going to take your house. Like, can you imagine a world where commitment at every level no longer functions? Like, We need commitments at a personal level, a business level, a financial level, a relational level to function. We just do. And the problem is, we all know that we are not awesome at keeping the commitments that we make. And so here's what we do. Because every time we break a commitment, there's pain. Every time a marriage dissolves, there's pain. Every time that a house is foreclosed on, there's pain. Every time that we get evicted or have to evict someone, there's pain. Every break of commitment, every time a commitment is broken, there's pain in the process. And so to try to avoid that, we try to formalize our commitments by taking the best desires of our heart and putting them in concrete realities. In other words, I wear a wedding ring. This is a tangible piece of gold that I have on my finger and it represents the commitment of my heart to Jen. It represents the commitment that I have. It's a tangible thing in the real world to try to represent that I want everyone to know I'm committed to my wife. I have signed papers from the bank for my mortgage, a physical piece of paper with a real pen with my real name on it. 
that I'm going to pay back this big amount of money that you're lending me with all the interest that you're getting. Like I formalize that. We take the ideas of our heart and put them into practical things in the real world to try to force commitments to stay true. But let me ask you, have you ever seen a ring keep somebody married when their heart is gone from it? Have you ever seen a loan agreement actually ever make anyone pay anything? Or as my driver ed teacher said in high school, he said as we were driving down the road coming up on a traffic light and it was turning green, he said, Tim, be careful. The other side um, is red, but I have never seen a red light stop a single car in my life. Because it doesn't. The ring doesn't make me married. The piece of paper doesn't make me pay it back. And the red light certainly doesn't stop a car. It all has to happen in here, inside of my heart, and the desire and a willingness to keep the commitment that I make. And so I want to nuance this commitment because when it comes to faith, and this is what I want to talk about this morning, a faith commitment is different and has a different nature than almost any other commitment that I know of in this world. Being committed to your faith and figuring out what that means is nuanced in a very different way. In fact, let me, make, let me put it this way. Here's how generally commitments work in the world. That we make our commitments and then our commitments make us. You may have heard this said about other things, but this is true for commitments. When I make a commitment to pay back the bank for the loan that I have for my house, I made a commitment. And then that commitment makes me be disciplined and regular in showing up to work and getting a paycheck because I need to pay them back. And that shapes me into something. When I make a commitment to marriage, that changes the way I think about my schedule, my day, my own life. That commitment makes me, it shapes me. When we make our commitments, then our commitments make us. If you're an athlete, if you're a musician, you make a commitment to your craft, to your trade. You get better at it because you've committed to it and you get better at it. You make a commitment and then the commitment makes and shapes you. When it comes to faith, when it comes to being committed to faith, here's what we know. Commitments are required for faith to work. Commitments are required for this world to work. And commitment to faith is required for faith to work. And yet, and yet, we know that we're afraid of the kind of commitment that sometimes we really want to make because we know that a commitment over here necessarily means I'm not going to be able to be committed over here. And we're also afraid of our own inability to follow through on a commitment. So let me tell you what I think is different about a faith commitment. This gets changed to this. We make our commitments in faith, and then God's commitment makes us. In the world of faith, we make our commitment, and then God's commitment to us, shapes us. This is a game-changing thought that I want to flesh out with you in the book of Nehemiah. By the time we get to the end, I hope that you will put a commitment to faith in a new perspective, and I hope that if you are here this morning or listening online later, that there's something in you that wants to fly closer to the flame of commitment to God, that wants to move further in your relationship with God in depth in personal connection, that there can be a movement there understanding that your commitment to God isn't necessitated by your follow-through and your ability to be awesome, but that God's commitment to you predates 
any commitment that you ever make to him. And in fact, God's commitment to you invites safety, fearlessness, and our commitments to him. I want to flesh that out with you in the scriptures this morning, if we can. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 9 is where we are going to be this morning. And we are nine parts into a ten-part series that we are simply calling Remember When, because Nehemiah creates these moments throughout the book of Nehemiah and throughout the story of the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem in which there's moments where the people of Israel stop and remember when God has been good to them and remember the faithfulness of God and remember who they used to be. And in this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 9, we are walking into a period of time in the nation where the wall of Israel has been the wall of Jerusalem has been rebuilt now they've been fighting through all kinds of external internal battles and now they're ready to move forward as a people and really kind of take that next step of faith and so they they're in the middle of making essentially commitments before God and I want you to see the layer and the level of commitment that they are willing to make and to me it's kind of unreal and it's actually I can't I, I don't have a modern day parallel for the level of commitment that they are willing to make. So, by the way, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible near you in the pew around you, and we'd love to give that Bible to you if you don't, don't have one. But Nehemiah chapter 9, we're going to read uh, beginning at verse 32. You should know what's happening here. The beginning of this chapter, um, Nehemiah 9, 1 to 31, is essentially, um, these are Levites or teachers of law, they're, they're now kind of praying, speaking, praying um, to God, walking through almost a confessional spirit, confessional nature of saying, God, we have done wrong things, and that's why we are in exile. Okay, like we were, we were punished for our disobedience, and now we're back. And so the Levites are corporately owning what the failures of the nation of Israel had been. And this is their confessional. They're just walking through the history of the nation of all the places where we have failed. And we pick it up. We pick up the spirit of that in verse 32. And their Levites are praying and the people are gathered and there's a big moment. Everyone's all together and the Levites are saying these things and the people are going to come to agreement on commitment in a second. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things that it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. And then in verse 38, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Now look what they're doing, the end of the chapter, 
They are taking the commitment of their heart, the desire of their heart to be committed, and they're making a real-world, tangible, physical, I'm going to call it a contract, or it's a better way to see it would be a covenant before God. But a real, tangible, physical thing, kind of like my wedding ring, kind of like your loan if you have one on your house or your lease agreement, a tangible reality. And so look what they did, verse 38. We made a binding agreement. That means that this group of leaders has agreed on something. They've had discussions around how they should move forward. What are the things we need to do? And so there's thought that has gone into this. We have an agreement among us as leaders of the nation of Israel. We have agreement, and we are saying this is now binding. They've come to it with some thought, and then we put it in writing. We wrote it down so that we can be held accountable. These are the things we're going to do. We are not just telling you, God, we want to be committed. We're, we're back. We're good. And then five years later, what did we exactly say we were going to do? Does anyone remember the commitment that we made? They put it in writing so that those questions could be answered. Yes, we remember. In fact, let me pull it out. I have it written down. Here's the terms of the agreement that we all agreed on. And then, to make it go further... We affixed our seals to it. Like These are, are our signatures. This is our way of saying, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. So all down the line, they are in. And this is a very formal, official documentation and moment in which they are saying, God, not only do we want to be committed to you, we want it so bad that we want to kind of tame our hearts so bad that we want to put it in writing so that we're in. And then they go further, they go further. In chapter 10, verses 1 on down to 27, there's a list of people whose names are attached. And if you see in your Bible there on, the, on your phone or, or um, in the pew in front of you, whatever it is, you see the, the list of the names of all these people. These are the people who put their names down on this uh, agreement. They're, they're in. And then look what happens in verse 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people... Priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring people for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. All these now join with their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Let me ask you, when is the last time you have said, God, bring a curse on me. Bring a curse on me if I don't follow you thoroughly. I'm going to write that one down, God. I'm going to sign my name to that one. We're going to come up with an agreement in my small group, in my Sunday school class, or among my neighbors, or among the people who are my mentors and friends. Like, we're going, to, we're going to write down our commitment. We're going to sign our name to it. And then, God, would you please bring on to us, all who signed it, curses, if you wouldn't mind, for when we fail. Because this is what they're doing. This, is, this does not have a modern parallel to where we live today. It just does not have that. That would be considered way too crazy. And radical. I'm going to explain why they do that in a minute. But they bind themselves with a curse and an oath. God, we're in, we're going to follow us, and we're just giving you permission to discipline us if we blow it. That we so badly want to be in and our commitment to you, God, that we're willing to ask you to curse us if we disobey. Verse 39. 
continues the theme and the feeling because what happens between verses 29 and 39 is they essentially flesh out how they're going to live. We're going to live right by marrying right. We're going to um, do business right by honoring the people whom we owe things to. And we're going to honor the, the house of God well by giving to the Levites. And so all the way down for the next several verses, they just list out how we're going to live right. They flesh out their commands, the things that they are committing to. And look at verse 39. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. And then they finish with this powerful phrase, we will not neglect the house of our God. Like of all the other things that we could give our attention to, of all the other things that, that you know, we have the fear of missing out on all this and all this and all this, we, we are going to be committed to this one thing, and we'll be willing to miss out on all the other things, is we will not, whatever, we will not neglect the house of our God. We're just not going to do that. And they, they bind themselves to it. They make this incredibly powerful commitment, and there's this crescendo of commitment that comes down from these people. This is this groundswell of this heart's desire to be one with God and to follow him with all of their heart and soul, mind, and strength. And it is a real moment. It is a real powerful moment in the life of the nation of Israel. It's incredible. And the reason that it's so profound is because they were honest about their condition in chapter 9. In chapter 9, they were praying, God, we have blown it before. You are right to judge us. You are right to punish us. This is, we are, we are wrong, and you have been right. And you know what? That has been the history of the nation of Israel. To obey, disobey, be cursed, rebel, be forgiven, and be restored. And now they're saying, God, we so badly want to get it right this time. We're going to put a ring on it. We're going to sign a covenant to it. And we're going to do it right this time. And you know what happens? Before the book of Nehemiah is even over, they fail again. It's amazing. It's amazing. Before the book of Nehemiah is even over, before, like, can you wait to fail at least until the next book in the Bible? Like, let this moment be a moment where we can learn from and be like, hey, maybe we should be this committed. It would be kind of a neat thing to preach it that way and to speak it that way, and maybe I can call all of you to kind of commitment that you never had before and use this as an example. Like, come on, guys, we can do it. You can dig deeper and give more and try harder and serve God. Like, that can be a call to commitment, right? Except the truth is, these people who were so committed in this moment, who signed their life away to it, within a matter of years, failed significantly again, before the book even closes itself. As I said at the beginning, quoting my really brilliant driver ed teacher, Mr. Hutchinson, I have never seen a red light stop a car before. I've never seen a ring keep somebody married, and you have never seen a contract keep someone engaged in the terms of that deal. It's deeper than that for all of us. And here's what's generally true. We covered this a minute ago. That we make our commitments, and then our commitments make us. And this is the only worldview that the Israelites had at the time. This is how they were used to relating to God. And so when they make a covenant... What they're doing is they're saying, God, we're committing to you. 
Look how hard we're re-upping on this thing. We're committing to you, and we hope that this commitment will shape us and reshape us and move in us. The problem with this is, is this. It all depends on you, and it all depends on me. If you're an athlete, if you're a musician, if you're a business leader, and you make a commitment, and you don't make the big game, and you do not make regional course, and you fail in your marriage, and you fail in your business, whose fault is that if it's only about your commitment? Yours. You weren't committed enough. And whose fault is it in your relationship with God if the relationship with God is built on your commitments? It's yours. You weren't committed enough. And this is the only worldview that these people had. This is the way the Abrahamic covenant worked and the Mosaic covenant worked especially, that with obedience comes blessing and with um, disobedience comes cursing. And this is why it's so important when I said at the beginning that actually the way it works is we make our commitments and then God's commitment makes us. Things changed drastically when Jesus came to the earth. Things changed drastically when Jesus came to the earth. And he came to bring a new covenant to us. He came to bring a brand new covenant. And here's the way he explains this. He explains this covenant this way in Luke 22. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This cup, meaning the, we take it as communion now, but this cup that he was passing around in the upper room in, in Jerusalem there to his disciples before the night before he was betrayed, this cup is the new covenant. This is a new covenant. That language is the way that these people relate to God. This is a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, which is poured out for you. It's a covenant in my blood. Requiring what from you? It doesn't require your blood. It doesn't require your sweat. It doesn't require your tears. It's God's grace through faith. Faith, like anything else worth pursuing in life, requires commitment. It does. It requires commitment. We cannot have a society without commitment. We cannot have marriages without commitment. You can't have parent relationships without commitment. You can't have businesses. We, we can't have homes. We can't have banks. We can't function without commitments. Faith requires commitment, like anything else worth pursuing. But our commitment, listen, our commitment to faith is made under the umbrella of God's unconditional commitment to us. Our commitment to faith is made under the umbrella of God's unconditional commitment to us. And so when God commits to us through his son Jesus Christ, when he comes and dies for us in my place and your place, what he's saying is, I'm committed to you. I don't care if you're going to blow that thing or not. I want your commitment. I want your heart. I want all that you have. I want you committed. But by the way, before the book is over, you're going to blow it again. And I still want your commitment. And there is incredible safety in relating to a God like this. Who, when we blow it, hello, this week, in our thoughts, in our passions, in the part of our heart that we wish we could get control of, but just as wild. Come on, when we blow that, it's never about us re-upping enough commitment that somehow God's like, all right, now you're back in again. See, our commitment to faith 
comes under the umbrella of God's commitment to us. Before we were even interested in God, he died for us, which is why I've shared with many of you before, Romans 5, 8 is such a profound verse for me. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before I even turned from my sin, Christ died for us. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, right? I don't know where this lands for you. I don't know where you're, you're thinking here. But here's the question, an action step that I would encourage you to consider. Think of it this way. Do you remember when? Do you remember when you were willing to sign your life away like these Israelites were? This series is called Remember When, right? I like to ask that question at least once a message. Do you remember when? Do you remember when there was a moment in your life where you were ready to sign your life away? If you can't, can you imagine if there was that moment where you were willing to sign your life away? Do you remember the, 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 the strength behind that, the conviction behind that, the belief behind that, that, man, God can do anything through me. And I'm all his. Like, I'm full in. I've pushed all my chips into the table, if you will. Like, I'm, I'm all in to follow God with everything that I have. Do you remember when? That was a part of your story, your background, and your history. Remember that moment for you? For, for many of us, sometimes we, because we know we can't hold that high of a commitment, because we are going to fail, we draw down our commitment overall. And I'm just telling you, it may be wise to ask this next question. Because the commitments that we have made in our past can be increased, changed, adapted as we move forward. Because God has committed to us, regardless of our consistent failure. And so let me ask you this simple question. What do I need to start, stop, increase, or decrease? Where is it in my life that I have allowed, I've allowed my commitment to God to fall to the wayside? I've been lazy in how I've been thinking about my spouse. I've been inconsistent in how I pursue a relationship with God right now. I have been, uh, in my heart, harboring bitterness for way too long for someone who has offended and bothered me. I am not willing to extend forgiveness. Where is it in your own heart, in your own life, where you might need to start, stop, increase, or decrease something? I don't know the answer for you, but here's what I do know. That we make our commitments, but it's God's commitment that makes us. It's God's commitment to us that makes us. And so, listen, you could even be, here's what I believe, you could even be totally uncommitted. If you've come to that place in your life where you placed your faith in Jesus Christ because of God's incredible grace for you, here's what I believe. He's, he's saying, you're in my family. In fact, you could be the most uncommitted person ever to walk the planet but I believe, because of God's great grace for us, you're still a part of his family if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's what I believe. And so when we are committed, when we step forward, and we re-up and ask God, God, what is it that you would have me do? Like, Where do you want me to increase my faith? Where is it that you want me to do one thing or the other? Where is it that you want me to up my commitment, change, stop doing something that's distracting, start doing something that's right on point? Where is it that you want me to move? Now, would you do me a favor this morning? Do you think we can have a moment of audience participation that's safe? I think we can do that. All right. There was a song that was written back in 1860 all the way back in 1860. And it was written by Anna 
Bartlett Werner, I believe. Okay? You all actually know this song. Some of you might know what it is already. Be pretty impressed if you did. It's a song that you will pick up in just about one or two notes once we start it. It's a simple song, and here's why I would like us to sing this together. Because its message is so simple. And for some of us who have maybe grown up in church, who maybe are used to making commitments and asking God to love us more because we're more committed, I want that stripped away. I want that taken away and gone. Because our right standing before God doesn't come because of our commitment to him. Our commitments don't shape us. God's commitment to us makes us who we are. And so here's, here's what I want. I don't care where you come from, what you've done, what you've thought about, what you're thinking about doing, or whatever, even if you're thinking about lunch, I don't care. Here, here's the truth. And as soon as you know this song, join with me, okay? And let's make it quick so I'm not the only one singing in a microphone. <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. Believe that? And if that's true, God's commitment to you makes you who you are, not your commitment to Him. He loves you. He loves you. And because of that, He invites your commitment. That he can shape you even more. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to see in your word some people who have made some incredible commitments and yes, have failed along the way, but also have set the pace for us. Who are willing to sign their lives away and who are willing to give it all. Who are willing to bring curses upon them for their desire to follow you with everything in their heart. And so for us this morning, Father, in this world in which we live, in which we are now post-cross, and we see the beauty of your Son, Jesus Christ, and the new covenant, the new way of relating to you, the incredible grace of the cross, we still know that faith requires commitment like any relationship does. Help us never to confuse our commitment to you with our works to earn your favor. Help us to remember our commitment to you is made in the broader context of your unconditional commitment to us. And so where we are afraid to try again because we failed, when we're afraid to pick up because we might miss out, when we're afraid even of our own willingness or ability to be consistent, Father, give us courage. Give us courage this morning, I pray, to step right back in to re-up, to start, to stop, to increase or decrease. Things in our own life that we need to continue to be shaped 
by you through the good gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. So take our lives, we pray. Let them be lives that flow to you in ceaseless praise for who you are and what you have done. We love you, Father, and thank you for the time we can share this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.